If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Obadiah, finding itself in kind of the front part of what's called the Minor Prophets, kind of towards the end of the Old Testament. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, I want to encourage you to go to the table of contents at the very beginning. We all do it, especially in these Minor Prophets, I would imagine, but uh, find the spot for Obadiah, and then uh, there's only one chapter in Obadiah, but if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the chapters are the big numbers on the page, and the verses are the little numbers. So I'll, I'll be saying... Uh, a good amount of verses this morning, and those are the little numbers. So if you're following along, it'll, it'll help you to kind of see God's Word with your own eyes. Now, the book of Obadiah is very often misunderstood. Imagine your own self being misunderstood, or maybe even taken out of context. You might have said something and go, that is not what I was conveying. I don't know what you heard. Very often, this is what people do with books of the Bible or words of the Bible. They, they take things out of context, or they misunderstand what's clearly there. Obadiah, I think, is misunderstood. Honestly, it's very often avoided. Uh, I heard last week that it's actually, the, according to one website that a lot of people go to, it's the, it's the least read book in the Bible. Uh, you just might even sit and read it and scratch your head and go, I don't know about that. I'm just going to go to a gospel or a psalm. But this book is incredible. It feels complex in its arrangement, and it is. It's not, it's not written like other Old Testament books in its poetic form. Its style isn't even ordinary. It was originally scribed in Hebrew, and it is presented to you in what looks like a poem. Uh, it's poetic. It's about the past. It's also about the future. And parts of it also came true in our past, but its future. So you can think of it, it's talking about long ago, things, then things happened that happened 2,000 years ago, but it's also talking about something that is yet to come to pass, even though we see it becoming true every single day. There's a lot going on here. And Obadiah is amazing. It's an amazing book. There's a lot of gloom and doom, certainly, but there's also true hope and a good delivering God is making himself known. As I've reflected on this book this past week, I think it speaks more directly to our time than, than maybe even more of the minor prophets. Most of other prophets speak very often with an audience in mind, and it encourages you to look in and listen, but it, it seems like the book of Obadiah was written with, with you in mind, with you to hear it as almost a direct audience. It'll feel like you're peering in on something that you might watch behind glass, but, but it's speaking, I think, directly to you. If you just scan the book right now, you're you'll see that there are words separated in just 21 verses. The shortest book of the Old Testament. And it's helpful to see, I think, the structure of the book and allowing the structure of the book to help set the standard for what the book teaches us. The structure, a structure, tells a story. If you get the structure wrong, then you start getting this book wrong, and I think dangerously, you actually start getting God wrong if you mess up what has been presented to you from God's Word. If you go out of context... You might go down some distracting rabbit holes. Now, some commentators divide Obadiah into two clean parts, verses 1 through 14 and then verses 15 through 21, where there's a day of judgment for the people called the Edomites or Edom, and then there's a listing of crimes, but a day of the Lord against Edom and the nations is going to come. So you've got two parts there. Some see this dividing in three parts, verses 1 through 9, where Edom's coming defeat is presented. Verses 10 through 14, listing Edom's crimes against Judah. And then in verses 15 through 21, the day of the Lord and restoration of Israel and their rule. 
However, I think that you see two things, two different things happening here. I think you see two speeches. I think you can see that if you look at the text. There are two different speeches, and they're actually presenting themselves in two different genres. So poetry at the beginning and then prose at the end. I know that it, it appears, these last three verses appear like a poem, but I think they're, they're presented more like a speech or like a commentary on what Obadiah heard from the Lord in verses 1 through 18. So verses 1 through 18 are poetry, 19 through 21 are prose. Obadiah opens up by announcing that he's speaking a vision that God gave him. And then he concludes that vision in verse 18. It says, Then... Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. He speaks the Lord's very words in verse 1, all the way through verse 18. And then in verses 19 through 21, it's a a prose or a speech. And so I think that this is Obadiah's commentary on the Lord's speech. And it's amazing how how they're they're actually so different. The Lord is saying one thing, and, and Obadiah is looking at it with you in mind and going, if that's true, and it is, you must hear this. And then in verses 19 through 21, so we got two parts, the Lord's speech and then a divine given commentary. So the structure reveals a judgment oracle against Edom and also the nations in their entirety for their acts of wickedness against God's people, and it announces then salvation for Judah in this case. So the message of Obadiah is, the, I think, the realization of the Lord's sovereignty in the role reversal of Edom and Judah on the day of the Lord. So the realization of the Lord's sovereignty in the role reversal of Edom and Judah on the day of the Lord. And I'll I'll spend the rest of my time explaining that. So two parts of this book, giving us two sections of my sermon. And the first one, it's very obvious. There There is doom coming for the enemies of the Lord. So I didn't turn my outline in for the bulletin. Uh, in time, I actually switched it like three or four times on, on Thursday. But I'm going to give you the two points. The first one is doom for God's enemies. We see this in verses 1 through 18. That's what this vision is about. So within the first verses of the book, it's clear that judgment is coming for God's enemies who've been reigning over God's people. Think about this. These enemies have been ruling over God's people, and they're prideful, but they will be toppled, it says. Now, a lot of people believe Obadiah was written sometime after what's known as the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon. So Babylon took over God's people here. And the Israelite neighbors to the southeast, the Edomites, did nothing to help them. So if you've got a map, you've got Judah on one side of the Dead Sea, and then their their friends, sarcastically saying, on the east side of that, they were being toppled and their friends didn't help out at all. So this in part is scandalous, not only because they were friends, but they were actually related. These people had a lot of things in common. They would have gone to a family reunion, and they would have known the names of the other people at the family reunion. They were closely connected. That's part of why it's so scandalous. But Obadiah's language of wartime was not mere scaremongering. It it wasn't to rattle the cages or to scare them necessarily. He was genuinely warning the Edomites. He was saying, hey, listen to what the Lord is going to do because of your sin. Disaster was coming. And it was coming from God, which is in part so merciful of the Lord to do. In mercy, God was going to his enemies and saying, you're acting like this, you're doing this, return to me away from your sin. How merciful of the Lord to give these what feels like lightning bolts down to earth. 
Now, Edom regarded itself as high and mighty. You ever known someone like that? They really thought they were great stuff. But, God's, but God promised here to make Edom, look at verse 2, small among the nations. These high and mighty people would be brought and made small. They, they were proud. Obadiah's message would probably come as a surprise to them because these people lived in a safe place as well. They lived in a naturally secure location on top of mountains and in things like cities, and they really couldn't be reached by people who were trying to be or who were trying really hard. They could only be reached by narrow, winding passages. You can imagine this in like uh, Switzerland today. Part of the beauty of Switzerland is that it's really hard for enemies to get to. They lived in a naturally secure location, and Judah had just fallen, and its fall had enriched Edom, where they took advantage of their friends and family. More north and south trade would now actually pass through their side of the Jordan. And so this became an opportunity for them to enrich themselves from other people's fallings. You can imagine how this would make themselves feel even more prideful by saying, not only are we great, but look, almost in like a karma way, you could say, look at how we're being blessed by just just being at the right place at the right time. Times were good. Now, verses 1 through 7, they should be seen as an announcement of Eden's, Edom's deception. They were self-deceived. You see that in verse 3. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Well, they're being deceived. The pride of their heart has deceived them that they think that they're secure where they live in the high mountains, but actually God is raising up nations to come and attack them. And they're also deceived externally because of their allies. They think they've partnered with the right people. Not only do they have a lot of things, but they've got really good friends, but they're deceived in that those friends will actually be the ones that God uses to topple them. They're deceived externally. And then in verse 8 it says, Will I not on that day? Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Eden and understanding out of Mount Esau? I think that's a marker that sets verse 8 off from verse 7 where there's then an introduction to the concept of the day of the Lord, a listing out of the reasons for havoc to be poured out on God's enemies. Verses 8 through 18 I think is an announcement of Edom's destruction connected to the day of the Lord. There will be a day that the Lord for Edom and the day of the Lord for the nations. You've got two things now. So God is not only saying the day of the Lord is coming for you, but look around. It's coming for everyone who opposes him. There will be a day of the Lord for these two groups, but it's meant to encompass the entire world. You can see the logical flow of how this book carries out this this winding takes a broader effect. So in verses 8 to 9, it's the coming day of destruction. Edom's wisdom and might will be destroyed. But then look here at verse 10, amazingly placed there, kind of in the middle. Something, something appears out of the blue, and it completely shapes our understanding of the book. There is true reason for the destruction here. Look at it. God says that Edom was violently toward someone. Because of the violence done to your brother, Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. Violence was done towards not just Jacob, but your brother Jacob. Now, what's going on here? Just give you a little bit of a backstory. The Edomites are descendants of Esau. Esau is a person, so Edomites are a descendant of that man. 
God's people, the Judeans, were descendants of Esau's brother, Jacob. So you got Esau, Jacob, Edomites, Judeans. They all came from someone, but they had these brothers now. And this is played out in Genesis chapter 36. So God is, an, is pronouncing doom on the Edomites by tracing their identities, their lineage, all the way back to their separate founding brothers. Edom goes back to Esau, Israel goes, or Judah goes back to Jacob, and the larger point is being made here that Obadiah is inviting us to read this book with a backdrop of the Esau-Jacob history and story where the Bible's plan and themes seem to begin for his people. Now, you might think of this as a backdrop. If you've ever gone to a musical or a play at school, unless it's like a major production, there's kind of one common backdrop behind it. And that sets the tone of what's happening. Maybe it's a sunrise, or maybe it's like in a fish tank, you know, if it's Finding Nemo, or something. Something's happening where it's like, okay, everything is in a fish tank, everything is at a sunrise, everything that's happening. The, the backdrop of this context is a battle royale between two brothers long ago. Obadiah is inviting you to read this book from the backdrop of Jacob and Esau as a real thing, a true story where the Bible's plan for his people seemed to seemed to have a catalyst. It was God's initial desire at that point for the older Esau to serve the younger Jacob. And a battle began there, and it continues, we see, all the way into the story of Obadiah, the prophecy of Obadiah. Now hold on, let me take you back to Genesis in the tent of Rebekah, where Isaac, this man, had these twin boys. And typically the one born first is greater, but not in God's will and not in God's design for this group. God chose Jacob, not Esau, to be his blessed son. So there's a battle between these two. And then you continue on in the scriptures, there's a continual case of these two and their descendants' battle against one another. So you kind of have something in the past that shows itself a whole lot throughout the scriptures, and now Obadiah is presenting this as the reason for the day of the Lord to come toward these people. You've got numerous passages that are referred to in different, through different historical events, different altercations between these two brothers and their family members, and even attacks between Edom and Judah. Then you've got the prophets taking up oracles against the nations, including Edom in that, where famously you have in Malachi 1, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and so you've got quite a few passages that you really need to have in the back of your mind about Esau, Jacob, and the histories of Edom, Edom and Judah. We, we see this played out all the time in our modern culture of rivalries, right? Some of you might have just grown up not liking a particular team or a particular town or a particular... You just, whatever happens with those people, you just don't like them. You've been trained to be against them or maybe you've even been trained to deceive them. If they come around, we're going to do them dirty, right? You might see this in friendships of, oh, you're related to that person or, oh, you're friends with that person, not picking you for my basketball team. I don't like them, which means I don't like you. You've got that in Esau against Jacob. So what's going on in the book of Obadiah is the drama of Esau being back and alive. He's back again, and he's back through the people of Eden, his descendants. Obadiah invites you to read this book against the backdrop of Jacob and Esau narrative in Genesis. Now, why is that so important? Because Edom is against God. They think they're better than Judah. And from materialistic standards and worldly kind of circumstances, they are better than Judah. They're more high and mighty. 
They've got more things going for them. You would draft them before you would draft Judah, these great and powerful, almost older brother type figures. And so God has the desire to take these awesome slash evil people and reverse their roles again. He'll take the high and mighty people and he'll bring them down. He'll take the lowly and weak people and raise them up. And what I really mean by role reversal, or there's a divine reversal going on here, is that during Obadiah's time, Edom was on the rise and Judah was declining, becoming increasingly vulnerable to the attacks of her closest neighbors like Edom. And this would eventually end in the destruction of Judah's capital, Jerusalem, and the exile of the people of Judah. Now, here's a larger picture from a heavenly perspective. As Edom remains on top and politically dominant, and as long as Judah is oppressed and attacked by Edom, what really is happening here from a heavenly perspective is that the reverence and worship of the Lord is being diminished. If, good, if bad guys are having their way, in a world's view, that diminishes the, the beauty and power of the Lord. If the good guys are just being assaulted and crushed all the time, wouldn't their God be mocked? And so what God is doing is, is almost summoning allegiances to himself by reversing the roles of this high and weak people involved themselves in. Does that make sense? There's a bigger picture here. As long as Edom keeps attacking Judah, it is God who's diminished in the view of the nations. So God desires righteously, mercifully, graciously to reverse the current role and bring Essene back to himself. He's going to do this by crushing their idols, by crushing their pride. And you and I see this actually a lot in our own lives, don't we? We we very much wake up and we don't say, this is the day that the Lord has made. We say, man, the world is lucky to have me in it. And what does God graciously do in many ways? He removes a glory from you so that you can see how temporary and futile it is. And you go, oh, Lord, thank you for removing that idol. It's painful. It may be expensive. It may be humiliating, but it is you who deserves all glory, laud, and honor. We see this oftentimes where we might get introspective on, on why, my, why God may have jostled me or, or shaken my soul. Well, it was to bring my attention back to him, to the one who deserves all of our affection, all of our, all of our heart's desires. We very often build up almost calluses against God's glory because, because we like what we see in the mirror. Now, God says to this awful and evil group, enough is enough of this rebellion against my will. You see, this is not just about a fight between brothers, but this is also an assault against the Lord. And the Lord says, enough is enough. And so this is an announcement of the sovereignty of God and the role reversal of Edom and Judah on the day of the Lord. Now, think of it. Verses 1 through 7, Edom was haughty, so it says God deceived them. Verses 8 through 18, what what they did to other people will in reverse be then done to them. You see that? It's a a prophecy of poetic justice against God's enemies. What's happening here in Edom actually uh, going to be destroyed is not only that they're going to be destroyed, it's not just that they're going to be destroyed for their pride, for their wickedness and attacks on Judah, which is just in and of itself. Uh, But ultimately, what's also at play here is that they've struck against the sovereignty of God. 
Far too often, we just think of our lives in a horizontal basis, and we don't think of it as being a part of God's kingdom, God's world. We very often go against God's will. And so God, in verse 15, look at it there, promises to bring them justice. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. He's telling them what they've sown is what they will reap. There, now, there are many implications of God's justice in this that we could consider, but let me just point to one. The, the promise of divine justice, as you look at this text, should actually really encourage us Christians. The promise of divine justice should encourage us as Christians. It should encourage us when we personally face something that is unjust or a suffering that is unjust. It should encourage us when we hear of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world facing unjust suffering. Because the message of of this book, even in contemporary settings, is that it will not always be like that. The enemies of the Lord will meet their maker. The day of the Lord will be held by everyone. The message of, of God from this text is emphatic and overwhelming and and certain enemies of God will meet their maker. God will defend his people. And I think quite wonderfully, this is all in accordance to his will, to his desire. It won't be thwarted. His justice is not just an afterthought of his plan, but his plan to bring glory to himself by justice being poured out on his enemies. Friend, I think this is, if you see this as a book for you and you're not a Christian, I think this should serve as a mirror towards your own heart, where there, there is a subtle undercurrent of, of how do you feel if this is true? How do you feel about your own life? Finding yourself possibly, and I think literally, sinning against the Lord. These people weren't just sinning against their brothers, but they were sinning against the Lord. So if you find yourself sinning against a brother or a friend, recognize that according to God's word, you're, you're sinning against the Lord. And how does God deal with those who are enemies of him? In mercy, he says things like wake up and return because his justice will be poured out. In many ways, if you're not a Christian, I hope you do feel haunted by this text. Not because there's like doom and gloom promoted from us, but just, man, if this is, if this is true, all these other Christians are saying this is good news for them. I don't find any good news in this. And it should act like that towards you. So we see that there is doom for God's enemies. But then secondly, uh, in verses 19 through 21, there's actually hope for God's people. There's doom for God's enemies, but secondly, there is hope for God's people. Obadiah's vision from God is in all gloom and doom. Watch how he interprets it. I'll read it again. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And then at the end, saviors shall go up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom of the Lord, or in the kingdom shall be the Lord's. God's people are given hope in this passage amidst great despair, as if God were promising to bring them back to life from the dead. God will make Mount Zion holy again. He will dwell with his people. And I think that's why you, you actually have the climax of this whole text at the very end where it says, Saviors shall go up to, the, up to Mount Zion and rule Mount Esau. Those who are redeemed will rule over the enemies of God. So you see how the older shall serve the younger, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Only when the divine economy, if you can say it, is back in order in history, with Judah back in their land, 
God is promising to restore what he desired from the very beginning, where he would be with his people and they'd be ruling over his creation. We have God seen here as a king ruling over all the nations, as he had proposed from the very beginning of our scriptures. Now, in one sense, these promises were fulfilled within a very few decades after this text. So when a number of the Israelites actually returned from the exile in Babylon to the land of Judah. So we see a lot of things playing out, this prophecy, as coming true, not, not too far after it was given to God's people. But the author also seems to perceive dimly that this resurrected kingdom will include all of God's people, not just this particular group. I hope you see how he includes the reference of the house of Joseph. The house of Joseph was a part of the northern kingdom that had been dispersed among the nations 150 years earlier from this. So the fulfillment to which Obadiah alludes to was not ultimately to be experienced by Ezra or Nehemiah, two of the returning exiles, but rather Obadiah will be ultimately fulfilled when God's people are in God's place under God's rule through God himself, the Lord Christ Jesus. So you've got Obadiah doing something amazing here. It's forecasting something that we can see with certainty did happen. And then it's going to forecast something a little bit further in the future that you and I in 2023 can look back and say, oh, that did happen. To when then it seems to forecast something that's even beyond us, we can have hope in that because of all the things that happened. This is not just a a simple prophetic word, but a a really pronounced um, given hope towards God's people. This is really where roles are reversed, where God's people in God's place under God's rule are held through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, historically, interestingly, the Edomites who settled in Negev eventually formed their own religion called Edomia, and they had their own king. And amazingly, if you keep reading on in the scriptures towards the New Testament, another king would show up who is from Edomia. He's an Edomian. He's an Edomite. He's from Esau, which I think makes a fascinating connection to what God does in Christ when King Herod is aiming to kill all the children in the land so that no one can conquer him. It was King Herod, another King Herod, when Jesus, after Jesus was born, who actually sentenced him to death. And there you see Esau again. Esau coming back to life once again. And then you get to the cross in the New Testament. You know, another King Herod sentences him to death, almost like Jesus was meeting his evil twin. When you understand Jesus as the true Israel in the scriptures, you know, we say that Jesus is the true and better Israel, or he's the fulfillment of all the things that Israel was supposed to be, and like how Jesus was the true and better Adam, or the true and better Abraham, or the true and better Noah, and Moses, and David, and Daniel. He's the epitome of how all God's people were to be, the true Judah. We can see how stunning and hopeful this prophecy actually is. Like Judah, Jesus was insulted. What does God do through that? Like Judah, Jesus was attacked. Like Judah, Jesus was deceived by those closest to him. Or he deceived those who were closest to him. But by the end, Jesus is also the one who was rescued. He was the one who was restored. He's the one who's vindicated and given possession to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. And it was at the cross, it was Jesus who experienced. I think amazingly, you see this text going forward. What did Jesus experience on the cross? But his very own day of the Lord. Where he 
was bearing God's wrath to the point where he was crushed to death. The day of the Lord is really an event about salvation through judgment. We very often see that the day of the Lord is just about judgment on those who are enemies of God. But keep in mind, throughout Scripture, when it's talking about the day of the Lord, it also means a glorification of what God does for his people. It was coming for Edom. It came for Christ. And so that's when you look at this and say, okay, if this text is for me, will his day come for you? And like other prophets announced to you, will you survive it? The, the text is clear, our scriptures are clear that you will survive the, Lord, the day of the Lord if you believe. So while Obadiah speaks generally of Judah's vindication in the eyes of the world of saviors going up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, it's Jesus who rules his people and the nations from the heavenly Mount Zion after his ascension into heaven. You, you see where this just becomes so incredible as a foretaste of what you and I possess today because of the work of Christ. What blessings we have in Christ. We have this true deliverance. The promise of an inheritance in Him. Justice that was poured out. God's Word as it was revealed and given to us. God's undeserved love given fully over to us. Friends, as God's people in this church, we have already begun to experience these blessings from God. God's friends are His own special people set apart in Christ to enjoy His salvation. The day of the Lord is doom for all the enemies of the Savior. And it is salvation for all those who, who believe in Him, as the Scriptures say. Who trust in Him, as the Scriptures say. Who place their absolute hope in His salvific work. Now if you just look at the end of verse 21, let me close up with this. Finally, we, we must look at the last phrase of Obadiah. And the kingdom will be the Lord's. What a hopeful thing. This sentence points us to all kinds of things that people today don't understand at all. But we must understand these things if we want to understand Obadiah, the Old Testament, or even the Bible in total. The kingdom will be the Lord's. In other words, the Lord is the king over all the nations. And he showed that by the way that he treated both Edom and Judah, where God's kingship is the real message of this little book. God used Obadiah to show both Edom and Judah that he is the king of all the earth. The vision was primarily addressed to unbelievers, the Edomites. And in fact, Obadiah appears to be the only book in the Bible written primarily for unbelievers. Why prophecy to unbelievers, though? To people whom God would judge, who were proud, who were unjust, who had hardened hearts. Why is this book given to them? who were pronounced as God's enemies. Why, why didn't they believe? Because God will declare the truth about himself and what rebellion brings even to his own enemies. Which is why in joy we recognize that in our own sin, that's when God showed up. In our own separation, it was him who knew no sin to be made a sin, to be made sin for our account. As far as we are away, the message of the Lord still comes for those telling them to come to himself. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I must warn you, a meeting will occur that you can neither avoid, avoid nor delay. And on a day, whatever you have trusted in throughout your life will be exposed. And the scriptures are here to tell you that nothing that you have trusted in up until that meeting with God will save you. 
God will and should judge you for your sins because he's a righteous God. But your only hope lies in the one who has given himself to take the penalty for sinners. The only hope for you and for me is to turn from ourselves, from the things that we might be prideful in, and trust in Christ. The scriptures say that if you believe and rely on Christ's work on the cross, there is great hope in Obadiah's process, promise that the kingdom will be the Lord's. So friend, this book is for you. The question is, what are you going to do about it? The people who first heard Obadiah's brief, brief prophecy would have been struck by God's commitment to avenge his people's loss. God's commitment to, is clear and uncompromising. So was Edom destroyed? Yes. Edom was first invaded in the next century by the Arabians. Then it suffered a wave after wave of invasion until the nation finally dissolved. Were the Israelites restored? Yes, partially. But the fuller restoration Obadiah prophesied about began when Christ Jesus came and declared that the kingdom of God had begun and then ushered many Jews and non-Jews into God's reign over their lives. When Christ took on flesh and lived among us, he showed us truth and gave our lives the possibility of meaning. So hear Paul's call to God's enemies. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be a sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so according to the Bible, we all have been God's enemies. The question is whether have you been reconciled to God through Christ. In one part, you see doom. And in another part, you see triumph. Friend, the call is for you to face the one who promises to bring true triumph. Let's pray together.